All right, we begin today's session three of our series on the Holy Family. And we turn now, uh, we had an introductory session, we had a session on Adam and Eve, which developed into Cain and Abel, which develops into Lamech, and everything starts sliding down a, a slippery slope. We've gotten ourselves now uh, to the patriarchs, that would be the, the families of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you'd think to yourself, well, surely they'll have this family thing figured out by the time we get to a series of people named the patriarchs. I mean, this is the big, this is the big group here, uh, and you'll find that that's not entirely the case, but uh, we'll, we'll offer a prayer first I'll, and uh, move on into our into our session number three, we will be actually breaking next week. Next week we'll be doing sung morning prayer instead of Sunday school, if you recall. It's the first Sunday of the month. And following that, during the pre-Lent season and Lent itself, our deacon, Deacon Joshua, will be teaching a course on asceticism. When Easter is over and we're into Easter tide, we'll return to the Holy Family, and you'll hear the thrilling conclusion of our class. The conclusion is actually longer than the pre, uh, preamble, so we'll be in the New Testament then, or at least we'll be at Song of Songs then, and, and then into the New Testament. But let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, there is bonus material today from a question that was asked uh, online afterwards about the previous session. So we have to get to it in order for you to get the, the bonus question. The question basically is, where did Cain find a wife? That's a, that's, that's a classic question there. So if you want to talk about that, we've got to get through this first. That'll be your reward. <laughs> All right, uh, the Holy Family. As we're, as we're looking at the, uh, the family in the Old Testament, you recognize that you don't really see the ideal here, do you? You don't really find the ideal family. There's a term uh, that the church has developed, uh, a, a Latin phrase, via negativa, which initially has been used in order to define or speak about God himself. In other words, you don't have a word that really encapsulates the character of God. It's easier to talk about what God isn't than to talk about what God is. If you, t- if you were to say that God is incomprehensible, you would describe something about God via negativa. In other words, you can't comprehend him in the way that, that you can't... To comprehend means to reach your arms around and touch your fingers on the other side. You can't comprehend God in that way. In that way, he is incomprehensible. Not that everything about him is incomprehensible. Uh, he, he reveals many things to us about himself, but you can't quite get the eternity of God into your own head. That's a via negativa sort of way of thinking. In theology and philosophy, the focus on what something is not as an indirect definition as to what it is. Uh, we got a little image here. An artist uh, did something about something. Uh, uh, Meister Eckhart said, it is, dark. it is in darkness one finds the light. In sorrow, this light is nearest to us. In other words, uh, 
it's a negative way in a sense. We're not talking about negative in terms of bad. We're talking about like a photo negative where you hold it, you see everything opposite and you hold it up to light and you begin to get an image of what is by what isn't. Get it? Good. Okay. <laughs> in the original setting of Eden with Adam and Eve prior to the fall, we see something of a positive picture of what God meant in creating all things. You remember earlier in last class we were talking about God has basically given Adam and Eve everything, everything they could possibly want, and said, enjoy, including their own personal freedom, and just said, enjoy it. And they found a way within the first uh, few verses to mess it up. So that is the story of of humanity, uh, an element that we all share. But uh, from then on, it's kind of a via, negative, uh, via negativa when we're talking about family. So since then, the ideal picture of the family is often formed via negativa. And I could say our question, as we're reading through this element of, of the book of Genesis primarily, and as we move through next into Kings, the, uh, the families of Saul, David, and Samuel, or uh, yes, Solomon, I'm sorry, the question keeps recurring, where is the perfect father in all of this? Where is the perfect family? And you'll see if you hold the patriarchs up to the light and look at it and reverse the picture, there's a perfect father in here, but you've got to look close, okay? <laughs> so we're going to start uh, with the, the first of the patriarchs, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Now her, her name, like his, was one, his was once Abram, it was changed to Abraham. Her name was Sarai, and changed to Sarah by God at different times. But for all intents and purposes, I'm just going to call them Abraham and Sarah for the most part. In Genesis uh, chapter 12, we find something here. Abraham is called along with Sarai to leave their father's house and go to the land that would be shown to them. You've never received an instruction like that in your life. They received an instruction... They believed and they obeyed. That seems to be one of the most astounding, uh, really, uh, moments in the book of Genesis is that they're coming from the land of, uh, of Ur in the Chaldees where the God's name is literally Sin. Uh, the moon god was their official god. And I think they had determined... That for a long time, God, uh, the moon God, hadn't said one peep to them. And so uh, Abram receives a message from the Lord in uh, chapter 12. Actually, his father received it also, uh, Terah. And they are told just basically to take up everything they have, leave their house, and go to the land that would be shown to them. And they obey. That takes a great deal of faith. And it's credited to, him, credited to him as well as faith. But we're in the same chapter, chapter 12. On the journey, Abraham becomes afraid of the Egyptians and pretends that his wife is his sister so that he would be safe. Not she. He would be safe because he envisions, I have this beautiful wife. As soon as we sojourn into the land of Egypt, they're going to see how pretty she is. They're going to take her and kill me. So I'll say she's my sister. And the scriptures literally say, so that he would protect himself. Okay, wait a second, you know. <laughs> this is the patriarchs. This, this is the, 
this is the family of God beginning here. And we ask ourselves, where is the perfect husband in this situation? And that is not so hot right there. And you say, oh, surely he learned his lesson after Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh said, what are you doing? This is your wife. You know, you've put a curse on, on Egypt because of your uh, cowardice. Certainly he would never do this again, except that he does do it again in chapter 20. Uh, read on. This dude did it twice. <laughs> okay. Where is the perfect husband? Where is the perfect uh, father? Uh, what happened to the famous faith? And, and as we were asking last week, what if Eden had happened differently? Well, there's really no answer for that, but it's something to think about. Here's another one. What would have happened if Abraham had been brave? And had said, I would never lie about who my wife is for my own protection. Come what may, I will be brave. Who knows what would have happened then, right? It's something, there's really no answer to it, but it's a question that ought to be asked. And it's something that will help, as like I say, you're seeing the negative. You hold the negative up to the light and say, where is the perfect father in this? Where is the father that would be brave who would suffer for his spouse regardless of the consequences. He's not in that story just yet. But you're you're starting to hope in him, aren't you? He's just not this guy. Okay, now this guy makes it into the Hall of Fame of Faith, if you want to call it that, Hebrews 11. But it ain't all good. It's not all good. (laughs) Okay, Abraham and Sarah, their story continues. Abraham is told that though Sarai is barren, that his descendants would be in number like the stars in the sky. And in Genesis chapter 15, it says he believed, and he believed, and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness, a sentiment which is repeated in the book of Hebrews. Sarah is not so sure. Her name changes in the midst of this. Sarah told Abraham, no, I know myself, I know my body, it's not going to happen. She says, why don't you go around God and use my maidservant to produce this heir that you're supposed to have. And so Ishmael is born, Genesis chapter 16. You see, there's not much distance between chapter 15 where he believed that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky and Genesis 16 where he's uh, acquiescing to Sarah's, I have to say, lack of faith, uh, and her giving him her maidservant, Hagar. Now, that's a name you don't hear very often for a woman. Uh, Hagar. And then, when they're 100 and he's 100 and she's about 90 years old, the message comes again as the plant, God is planning the future with their descendants And they overhear this, and they both laugh at the thought of God's promise still coming true. You know, if if ever there was a a person who interpreted the word of God to be metaphorical, it would be Abraham and Sarah as they were 190 years old. Surely this is like a metaphor for our offspring in faith or something like that. And God is saying, excuse me? Uh, a year later, they held in their arms their young son, Isaac, whose name means laughter. And that's partially a joke and partially an eternal reminder about how, no, you did laugh um, when I told you. 
that she would have a child, and she had a child anyway. Um, where is the perfect mother that always believes what the Lord says, and her faith never shakes? And where is the father who, who doesn't just believe at one point when it's easy, and then not when it's difficult? Uh, where are these people? They're not in this picture, but you're seeing the negative, right? Uh, you could see that there would be a woman that would come perhaps one day who would just believe. Where is she in this story? She's not really there. Yes, Sarah makes it into Hebrews 11 too. I'm not knocking Sarah. I'm just saying, yes, it would be hard at 90 years of old to believe that you're 90 years of age to believe that you were going to bear a child. But, uh, but nevertheless. They do bear Isaac. Here's this, this uh, family of God, of the patriarchs, where God, now that Isaac has finally come into existence and there's a real hope that perhaps this, this will come true, this, uh, this idea of the descendants being as the stars of the sky, God tells Abraham to go ahead and sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar on top of Mount Moriah. And this is the literal peak of Mount Moriah, where there is a heap of rocks, uh, I'm sure made to look like an altar that Abraham uh, may have used. Abraham obeys until he is told to stop at the last moment. And in that strange moment, the substitute of a ram caught in a thicket foreshadows the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of all humanity. And you find that Abraham, in his simple obedience, now kind of is imaging the sacrifice of the father uh, sacrificing his son, the son, on, on behalf of us. There is something clear in the image there. Abraham and Sarah, therefore, are kind of a mixed bag of faith and doubt of a holy family, both the image and the photo negative of the image. We talk about the Old Testament being like types and shadows, uh, the Old Testament being kind of like the New Testament concealed well, this is that rough, scratchy message that came over the radio station where you missed half of the words, but half the words came through. This is that message about what's meant by family through Abraham and Sarah and now Isaac. Any thoughts about Abraham and Sarah before we move on to Isaac and Rebecca? Scriptures don't say nearly as much about Isaac as, is, as, it does, as they do about Abraham and Jacob, and almost immediately the story of Isaac and Rebekah turns into another story about Jacob and Esau. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob, a smooth man, as, I don't, that's like, not the same as smooth operator, that, that's like <laughs> smooth, like smooth-skinned man, and Esau, a hairy man. And oh boy, they fall into these uh, stereotypes, don't they? The one is... Uh, the one is, uh, Isaac's favorite is the hairy man, uh, you know, quarterback of the football team. And Rebecca's favorite is Jacob, who won first prize in his art, uh, his painting class. Okay? Uh, see the pattern there? <laughs> Jacob takes heat uh, for being a trickster in the end. But Rebecca is really the one who taught him all of his tricks. Okay? Jacob was was no trickster before Rebecca said, here's what we do. We trick my husband. And you're looking at that picture of the Holy Family and you're saying, where is the wife who uh, trusts her husband's judgment, who trusts that the Lord will work this out 
in, in his providence. Uh, it's not here in this picture. Um, Jacob takes the birthright from Esau. He tricks his father Isaac for the blessing of the firstborn son. And he runs for his life because his brother is ready to kill him. Do we know any other stories where a brother is ready to kill another brother for having been blessed? A blessing that he felt he deserved? Boy, this is a family, isn't it? It just, they just, I mean, this is many, many uh, decades and centuries later, but, but nevertheless, there's something in here about a jealous brother who would just love to get his hands around that little brother of his who, who's mommy's favorite. Ooh. There's a pattern here. And, uh, and like we say, we, we hold up to the light and we say, where is the brother that's like a friend? The brother who would be just so loving and ultimately reliable and not jealous and willing to hand over all of his things to his little brother. Where is that brother? You're hungry for it in this story, and you want to find it in Jacob and Esau, and you find little bits of it. You find parts and pieces, but not the brother, the friend. Because this is kind of the point, right? (laughs) You're seeing through the photo negative, there's something lacking here, but there is a brother starting to emerge, an ideal brother, an ideal mother, an ideal father, an ideal holy family starting to emerge. Yeah, it doesn't go well. When he settles uh, with Laban, Jacob, he winds up being tricked, tricked into 14 years of service for his wife, Rachel, and winds up with Leah for a wife as well, Rachel and Leah. And you'd say, well, finally all of the, the shenanigans are over. You know, now things will be at peace. And perhaps in the river Jabbok, when God wrestles with Jacob and puts his hip out of joint, uh, you know, everything will calm down. It, it, it does somewhat, but not entirely. Uh, but what we have to consider in this whole situation, consider how it is that God chooses to work even through faithless, scheming characters in the Old Testament. And how does he do that? Jacob's sons, okay? Now, Jacob, uh, something of a trickster, right? Who, when he's first asked his name, he says Esau. And that's actually not his name. He lied. He lied to his father. He tricked his father and his brother. Oh, my goodness. This is a dysfunctional family. This Jacob is given the name Israel. But where are these 12 tribes, these 12 sons coming from? Jacob has 12 sons. But only two of the sons are through Rachel. And that is Joseph and Benjamin. Okay, that's two. Uh, Leah, who he was tricked into marrying. Uh, now, he come, she comes first as a wife. She produces six. Six plus two is eight, right? Where do the other four come from? Oh, my goodness. It's not a great story. Um, <laughs> Jacob's, well, let's see, how does it go? Um, Jacob is first uh, father to the six sons of Leah. And Rachel, um, I think this is the order of operations. 
Rachel is jealous of Leah, so Rachel gives her husband her handmaid named uh, Bilhah. And Leah gets jealous of Bilhah, the handmaid of Rachel, so she gives Jacob Zilhah her handmaid, and then Rachel bears two. So he winds up with 12 sons. And you could easily say to yourself, there is no way God would use a dysfunctional, messed up family like this that's full of jealousy and competition and fear and resentment. And we're, we're thinking back to Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael here. Yet 12 sons become 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes become the chosen people of God. Why does God work this way? It's a rhetorical question. And also, uh, we're starting to see something. The picture is getting clearer of the perfect father. And the perfect father happens to not be Jacob or Isaac or Abraham. But there's a picture of a merciful father that says, yes, I know. Kids, there is jealousy here. I can tell there's competition, there's fear, there's resentment. But you know what? We're going to do something with this anyway. We're going to make this good. There's a picture of that good father coming in. It just doesn't happen to be these guys. So what is the larger story of the patriarchs as we're thinking about the holy family, okay? Uh, Are we then to look at the patriarchs and say, I think the message here is that we should imitate Abraham's fear and Sarah's laughter and Rebecca and Jacob's trickery and Rachel's jealousy. And uh, that actually can't be right. There are elements of their behavior that we should imitate But you can't say, you know, uh, I am of Rachel and I am of Rebecca. Uh, Not entirely, because there's some parts and pieces there that are missing. There's some evidence of the original problem in Eden. The original broken family. The original sibling rivalry. The original messed up nature of how things came to be. Behind all of that, we see an image of the Holy Family forming via negativa, right? What's not there is speaking louder sometimes than what is there. Um, We ask ourselves, where is the good and faithful Father in all of this? And I'm handing you the answer. I'm terrible at questions where I wait for an answer. So where is the good Father in all of this? That's right. Uh, Jane says he's right in the middle of it. That's exactly right. God is right in the middle of all of these relationships. And in fact, starting with Abraham, and you could make the argument starting with Noah and even starting with Adam, a covenant is, is beginning, especially Abraham, of course, the Abrahamic covenant. He says to them, basically, I will be your father. And you will be my kids. And I promise you, it's going to be good. And I will make you what you ought to be. You can't miss that in this story about the Holy Family. To Abraham, the father says, 
I will make you a blessing to all nations. And you look at Abraham's life and you say, how? <laughs> and you look at his son, Isaac, that he's supposed to sacrifice. Uh, that's a little bit messed up. Um, you look at Isaac, who was somehow tricked and gave the blessing to the wrong kid, but tricked really by his wife. And then you look at the sons of Jacob and it makes you sigh and sort of think, why? Why? Why is this all happening? Why does it have to happen this way? Of course, God could have done whatever he wanted to do. But that covenant is pressing its way through. In other words, it's saying it's not going to be by your faithfulness. It's not going to be by your goodness and your plotting and scheming. I'm going to make this happen despite all of you. You can participate in it wholeheartedly or half-heartedly. I'm going to do it anyway. There's a good father behind this. Any, any thoughts on that? Or any, any, uh, oh, Deacon Josh and then uh, John. Please speak up because it's re- being recorded up here. Um, what I think is interesting about the point that God is a good father, in the chapter 15 of Genesis, yes. where God makes that covenant with Abraham, he says that your descendants will be like the stars. Right. That's a play on words because those that were like the stars were angels. So he's saying your descendants are going to be deified. And what is one of the central Christian teachings that will become like God through grace. It's even more unbelievable then. So, and if, if, you go, if you go down, it's a bizarre story where God takes, has Abraham take all these animals, cut them in half, lay them on two sides. That actually fits the pattern of ancient Near Eastern peace treaties, in which a king would do this, and the king that was in charge would make that other king walk the middle of his animals. And the point was, if you break your peace treaty with me, I'm going to make you like these animals you just split in half. Right. So, but, but who walks through the split animals? Not Abraham, God. And Abraham's thinking, well, God can't die, right? I'm good to go. But then we have the incarnation. So I think there's a lot of foreshadowing with God being the Father. That's right. Uh, we're getting there. <laughs> uh, uh, John. Since he had relations with these four women, right. didn't God consider that adultery? It's, it's another uh, befuddling element of the Old Testament. And it's, it's easy to look at the Old Testament and say, there is something here that we're missing, or, or, or maybe, maybe it's all right to, to have multiple wives or something like that. What I would say is that though you, you find uh, multiple wives and concubines and all that in, in the Old Testament, I think it's, this is why I pointed out Lamech uh, last week. It's, it's important to point out that the first time someone takes two wives, he is wicked. Okay? Uh, in, in these other instances, it's almost incomprehensible. It's like, I don't know what God was thinking, but the, the, the larger point is what I was pointing out in the last slide. The larger point is it's like God is saying, I'm going to do this regardless. And you all can make whatever mess of it you want. I'm going to make it good. We're getting to the Holy Family in the New Testament where you really see that marriage is just like baptism is baptized. Marriage is consecrated by Christ. Because, you know, here it wasn't, you know, uh, the, the husband represents Christ and the wife represents the church. There was no Christ in the church yet. 
But when Christ comes along and he starts talking about marriage, he says, no more of this divorcing everyone and finding a new wife. No more of this, uh, uh, you know, five wives. There's one wife. There's one husband. And why? Because we're going back to the imaging of God, the original image of God that is built right into the holy family. Um, but yeah, there, there's a mystery. I mean, when we get to David, I don't see why David isn't absolutely clobbered for having a, a harem. How do you get away with that? And uh, I don't have a perfect answer, but that's the answer I've got. So <laughs> you find me a better one, I'll take it. Uh, Bob, and then we got a little bit more material. Marriage is absolutely a sacrament because it's been consecrated by Christ. And he, he actually takes practices that have already existed. Baptism had already existed, but it existed for a different purpose. He takes baptism and baptizes it. So that baptism is no longer a baptism into John, and it's no longer a ceremonial washing that lasts ten minutes until you touch a leper, and then you've got to go do it again. This washing is Christ's washing. This is the Holy Spirit's washing. This marriage is no longer just whatever you find, you know, David and his concubines. This is all done away with. It's been raised back up to its original Edenic state and elevated above it. So that marriage is now uh, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The life of God is in you in this relationship. That's different. That's like... That's, yeah, it's more better now. So, so we consider the image of the Holy Family. Well, this is kind of giving it away. Well, I'll give it away anyway. <laughs> so so you know, consider St. Mary. She faces an impossible promise. Does that sound familiar from the Old Testament? An impossible promise. You, barren uh, woman and man, will produce you know, uh, offspring like the stars of the sky. Uh, you, young lady, will conceive without knowing a man. Never seen that before. But she faces an impossible promise. There's no trickery to make it happen. She's not afraid in the sense that she won't do it and she'll try to find some other way around. She doesn't get angry that, it, that she's not like other, other girls. Why can't I just be normal, you know? There's no laughter at God. All those things are kind of put aside. In other words, there's a negative image in the Old Testament of a mother that would come. And there's a bride that will come too uh, when we talk about the church. I'm giving the whole farm away here. But uh, consider St. Joseph. Where is the insecurity? I have a, a, a betrothed wife who's pregnant. Is there anything that could make a man more insecure than that? Um, and it wasn't by me, you know. Uh, she says it was the Holy Ghost. <laughs> and, and Joseph goes to his own family and says, yes, it was by the Holy Ghost. It was by the Holy Ghost. And he receives a dream and he says, it was by the Holy Ghost. It was by the Holy Ghost. Lock, stock, barrel, bayonet, we're in. Uh, no resentment, no fear, no trickery, no running away. Um, no finding somebody else. Uh, really, an amazing story that, that begins to emerge via negativa from so much of the Old Testament. I got this off of awkward family photos. So. <laughs> and we say to ourselves, surely, this is like the patriarchs. This is, 
I mean, this is God's people. You know, the felt board in Sunday school. There's Abraham. There's Isaac. Those are. This is other people, long ago, better people than me. Surely God can't work through my family. I mean, look at us. I'm sorry for this family, whoever they are. I'm just joking. I'm just joking about that. Surely God can't use me or my family because we're too divided. We're too jealous. We're too angry or resentful. We're too inappropriate. and We're too complicated. God would likely use someone better than us. Okay, have you ever read the Bible? That's what I always say. That's what I say to people that, that say things like this. Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read Genesis and read the kind of people and the kind of circumstances? I bet you, you didn't have uh, a a Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Zilha, Bilha situation. I mean, that's complicated. That's complicated. I bet you you got a complicated situation, but not like that. God used them all over the place to change the whole course of, of human history. We are too what? Okay, we're too what? What is your answer to that? We're too to be used by God. There is, what's that? We're too human, that's right. We're too flawed. I'm just going to tell you, if God wants to do something in your family, he can do it, and you just need to get on board with it. Um, And if you've spent 10 years not believing, well, start believing. Today's the day. This is the day. Um, That's the nature of a a conversion. You know, these, these stories come fast in the Old Testament. But sometimes there's a decade in there that went through uh, in a verse. You know, a decade went through. Or 20 years went through. You know, he, he spent 14 years under Laban, uh, Jacob did. And 14 years doesn't translate when you just put it in a couple of verses. But 14 years to us, you know, if, if, you have, if you have something in your life that's taken you 14 years to get over, you can't say it's taken me 14 years and there's nothing left for no, no. You go ahead and get over it because there's more to come. You know, there's more happening here. God can handle 14 years. He can handle 50 years. He can handle 40 years in the desert and still do something. Uh, I'm giving you a tongue lashing now. <laughs> you thought you were coming to Sunday school. Is there a faithful, devout, holy one in your family? And you say, no, no, there isn't. Uh, it's probably... Probably we're, we're too far gone. Well, could you be that one? Possibly. I'm not asking you to look at your past and look for evidence of you being a holy, faithful, devout person. You, know, you may have that history. It's possible that that's your future. And your future will be the history that someone else will look back to in the future and say, oh, I'm so glad that in our messed up family, there was one devout, holy person who got their act together and that's the person I look to, and that changes things for the future. Uh, this is what I'm saying. Via negativa, we look at the Old Testament and we see a holy family popping out. And you look at your own life and you say, oh, that's different. It's not different. It's the same thing. It just is, uh, okay, I can't promise you're going to be St. Mary or St. Joseph. But something's going to happen. God can do all kinds um, with all kinds. That's it for the, uh, for the class. Now I have bonus material. Any, anything from uh, the patriarchs? Joe. <clears throat> Father Paul, what you're essentially saying is, you've got 
obviously expects obedience, but when there is disobedience, he sorts through the disorder and confusion and works through that, all of these situations that you... He can. Yeah, he can. He can. He didn't have to. Yes. And, and so when man tries to make things his way, it becomes more confused, but if we move back to the obedience right. aspect, then that can be worked through and made better. And what I'll say is you can look to the Old Testament to find instances of obedience, but if you want to find obedience, obedience, you look to Christ, who says, my food is to do the will of my Father. That's different than Adam and Eve. Their food was to see if they couldn't figure out how to eat this food from this tree and not die because God isn't really telling us the truth and we could probably find a way around. Uh, what you do is you look to Christ who even though in the Garden of Gethsemane he really didn't want to go to the cross, he said, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. There is an obedience. There is a father. There is a son. Uh, there is a family and that you are invited to participate in, and God can work through whatever He wants to work through. I, I, yeah. Anyway, anything else for for the patriarchs? We're going to do the kings next, but that'll be after a little while. I told you we're going to go Song of Songs, but it's the kings first. Bonus material: Who would marry Cain? That's a that's a two part question. <laughs> Who would marry Cain? That's the first one. And who? I mean, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. One, two, three, four. Where do you find a wife? And let alone a city. Uh, it says Cain goes out uh, to another city. A city? Okay. Some, obviously, we're missing something here. I was talking with someone yesterday and pointing out uh, that, in fact, when you read the scriptures, in the history of sin... Genesis chapter 1 is chapter 2 of sin, and you don't get chapter 1. Why is there a serpent in the garden? You don't get the answer. It's not there. You can hypothesize, you can try to find it in the book of Revelation or something like that. The fact is it's not spelled out for you, and, and the, the, the message you can receive from that is apparently it was not important for us to know that because it wasn't revealed to us. One day we'll get the answer. It's not in Genesis 1. You can read it backwards and forwards. Uh, it's not in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, there, there it is. So we're going to ask ourselves, who would be the one to marry, Cain, to marry Cain? In other words, where did other people or other cities come from if Cain and Abel are the first sons? I'm going to give you three options, and you're not going to like any of them, okay? <laughs> Option one, the book of Genesis is a poem. The figures are metaphorical. That's a common answer. I don't condemn it. If you read the book of Genesis in the original Hebrew, you listen to someone speaking it, it rhymes. There's plays on words, there's alliteration, there's puns. It's like a poem. It doesn't translate into English that way. But in Hebrew, it, has a, it rolls off the tongue, partly because this is meant to be memorized, and if you don't have iTunes or something, it better be like the lyrics to Hey Jude, where you, you've never read the lyrics to Hey Jude, you just know them, because you've heard it, and it rolls off the tongue, and they rhyme, and there's alliteration. That's what the, the Old Testament is like, and that's how a rabbi could have the whole Old Testament memorized. 
So one of the ideas is the book of Genesis is a work of poetry and the figures are metaphorical. In other words, the question uh, that we're asking is from the wrong century and the wrong category and the wrong uh, yeah, category. Second answer, another not fun answer. We don't know. <laughs> uh, the book of Genesis wasn't written to answer a logical 21st century question about history. We're used to the History Channel. We're used to a full introduction with the entire history of this topic. We're used to footnotes and references. This was not written for that purpose. And so the answers are not present and they were never intended to be present. Very unsatisfactory, isn't it? But if it's true, it's true. Um, if you uh, would really, really like for your recipe for chili to be an instruction booklet on how to do uh, wood lathe uh, work, you can read your recipe for chili upside down, backwards, rearrange the words, hold it up to the light. It just isn't that thing. The, qu- the answer to that question isn't here. Ugh. We don't know. Scientists don't like that answer. We don't know. But we have a theory. There, now you're in a theology class. We have a theory or a, a Bible study. Here's another, here's another potential answer if you don't like those. Adam and Eve, the scriptures say, lived to be several hundred years old. Okay? Uh, bearing children every nine months. If you start doing the math, and each of those children, once they're of childbearing age, bearing children... Every nine months, they didn't have, they didn't have a, a college to go to or a career to pursue. It was just being fruitful and multiplying. If you add, if you start multiplying together, human lives lasting centuries, producing children every nine months, perhaps more than one, and each of those producing, you don't have to go very far into history before there's not 10 people on the planet. There's hundreds of people on the planet. Um, and I'm going to tell you that I'm going to guess that at that early time, there wasn't anything wrong with the plumbing. The plumbing was working just fine. They were producing kids like left and right. Okay. If you don't like the first two answers, you can contemplate the third answer. And if you've got a fourth answer, we don't have time for it. So. <laughs> but that, anyway, that's the, tr- that's the truth. That's, uh, that's, that's one way to think about it. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't say, you know, and the next year Cain and Abel uh, had this interaction. Suddenly they exist and suddenly they're adults. Well, hold on. You know, if suddenly they're adults, you think, you think uh, there was no one else on the face of the planet at that time? If Adam and Eve, their first two sons are now adults an adult enough to smash each other's heads in in the field, there's at least 18 years of childbearing going on between that. And those kids are now ready to bear children also. It's complicated, but that's a potential answer. Multiply that by hundreds of years, and there's a lot of people around. A city doesn't have to be Atlanta in order to be called a city in, in the Old Testament either. It, you know, it could be a, a village, you know, 45 people, 16 little dwellings, and a fire pit, you know, that's a city. It could very well be 
so glad we're out of time because <laughs> that's all. <laughs> and we actually don't have any time for questions, but we'll, we'll be back.